Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Tomorrow afternoon, millions of Americans, along with millions of others around the globe, will sit down in front of their big screens and will watch the playing of Super Bowl 52. And unless I miss my guess, there will be two primary groups represented. The first will be the group that has a great time watching the game. They laugh and they cheer, they boo, they groan and they moan, they talk with their friends, they have a great time. And when the game is over, they're elated or disappointed, they go home, get a good night's rest, and Monday morning head to work, and there they talk about the game with their friends. That's group one. The second group, if I don't miss my guess, will be a group that lives and dies with the game. They will shout and swear, even a few from LLUC, unfortunately. (laughs) They will sweat, they will cry, they will pray. And when the game ends, part of this group will feel like their life is vindicated, the other part will feel like their life is over. They will go home, have a fitful night, and call in sick for work on Monday. (laughs) Now, I understand what you're thinking. You understand, you're thinking, I don't understand that second group. You're sitting there and feeling judgmental about them. I'm with you. I don't understand it either. It's hard for me to understand how people are excited. I mean, especially since my team has not even envisioned distance of the Super Bowl, I don't get that second group. But they're out there, trust me, they're there. Confirmed by an email I received just this week from a member of our congregation that said, my cousin has a friend who has two tickets for the 2018 Super Bowl. That's tomorrow's game. The friend paid $3,000 for each ticket, but he did not realize last year when he bought them that the Super Bowl was going to be played the same day as his wedding. So, if you are interested, he's looking for someone to take his place. It's at the Temple of God Church in Aurora. (laughs) At 3 p.m., her name is Judy Johnson. She's 5'1", weighs 110 pounds, very fit, a good cook, too. She'll be the one wearing white. (laughs) With best regards... George. So apparently there are people in that second group. Now before you say, wait, 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 take that with a very big grain of salt. Before you say that, before you just write it off, consider this. Some years ago, a sports talk radio station had a call-in question. They posed a question and listeners were to call in and respond to the question. Their question was simply this. Would you 
for the next two years, be willing to give up all sports, all sports for the next two years for $2 million. $2 million. That means no watching games on TV, on Internet, in person, no sports talk radio, that means no checking of the websites for the highlights and the scores. That means no going to work on Tuesday morning and arguing about the Monday night football game. That means you give it all up, gone, two years, $2 million. And the calls begin. One gentleman who called said, no, I would absolutely not be willing to give up sports for two years for $2 million. No, he said, I wouldn't give it up for two years for $25 million. And then he said this. These are his words. It's where I turn, sports that is. It's where I turn when I pick up the paper in the morning. It's where I go when I'm on the Internet. It's what I watch on television. It's what I listen to on the radio in the car. Everywhere I go, it surrounds everything I do. Did you get that line? Everywhere I go, it surrounds everything I do. It's easy to be judgmental about that, isn't it? The people in that second group. It's easy to think what's wrong with that person, but unless I miss my guess, somebody here today, two or three of you, when you heard that line, you thought, you know what? If I took sports out of the equation and inserted instead something else, that could describe me. If I inserted money, or fame, or power, or job, or house, or car, or fitness, or beauty, or clothes, you just fill in the blank. You thought, if I changed the reality from sports to this other thing, that could describe me. Everywhere I go, it surrounds everything I do. The Bible has a word for that. The word is idolatry. It's not a fun word. It's not one we want to speak that often. But that's the word the Bible uses. So I suppose the first thing to do is to define idolatry. What exactly is idolatry? Maybe a good place to begin is to begin with the centuries-old definition given by St. Augustine. St. Augustine defined idolatry this way. He said, idolatry is worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshipped. It's worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshipped. That's not a bad place to begin. But we need to go beyond just there because the truth is there will be many people who will watch and enjoy the game tomorrow, who will dress nicely, who enjoy their jobs, thankful for the car they drive, and many other realities who are not experiencing idolatry. So what does the Bible have to say about it? For that, we go to Exodus 20. If you're reaching for a pew Bible, it's on page 111. 111. Exodus 20. 
Because when God handed Moses the ten, he said something central there about this issue of images and idols. We began this journey last week, the ten. We began with the first word, God. And we saw that God was establishing a covenant relationship with his people. <clears throat> and that in that first commandment, he gave them the basis of the covenant, his work, his action, his grace, his freedom, and then the boundaries of the covenant. Once we enter into this relationship, he said, it's you and me, no other God. But that dealt with the supreme object of our affection and devotion. Today, the second word, worship, deals with the method. How do we worship God? Remember, Israel is coming out of four centuries of slavery, surrounded by polytheism. As they come out into their newfound freedom, they must have had on their minds the question, exactly how do we worship this God? Jesus will one day come, many centuries later, with the epitome of an answer when he speaks to a woman at a well on a hot day in Samaria and says to her, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the ultimate answer. He's saying the worship of God is not tied to places. It's not tied to things. You can worship God anywhere and anytime. That's the epitome. But that's many centuries away. So now to these former slaves. God is going to begin to point them in that direction. Begin to move them on that journey toward the authentic worship of God. So read with me the second word. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, read so well by Lucas Mamier just a bit ago as our scripture reading for the day. Here's what it says. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I'll tell you what I think of this commandment. I think, I think many people are familiar with it. They're familiar with its words. They're familiar with its focus. Maybe even those who are more marginally connected to church or Scripture are aware of what it says, its content. What I don't think we've done as often is to slow down and ask, why? Why would God give this command? The children of Israel were surrounded by nations who were not only polytheistic, but were also nations where the worship of the gods took place through the images through the idols, it was a constant temptation to the Israelites. So in that context, God tells them don't. Don't make them. Don't bow down to them. Don't worship them. And we want to ask the question, why? I want to suggest to you three reasons growing out of this text and this experience the Israelites had early in their exodus journey as to why God would have said don't. 
The first reason I think God says no images, no idols, don't do that, is because to do so hides God. It hides God. So consider the words of a scholar named David Baker as he helps us to understand what it meant to be in that world and to worship through an image or an idol. Baker writes, Elaborate rituals were used to transform an image so it was imbued with the divine presence and became the pure epiphany of its God. The material image was understood to be animated by the divine essence, not simply representing the God, but manifesting its presence. Thus the image was believed to be alive and able to eat the food, drink the water, listen to the music, and smell the incense brought by the worshipers. However, the image and the God were not the same. The God was the reality embodied in the image. As a result, images functioned as mediators between people and their gods. On the one hand, the gods were thought to reveal themselves through their images. On the other hand, statues were placed in temples to mediate the prayers of the worshipers to the God. It's in that context that God comes through Moses to Israel and says, No, no images, no idols. Because to do so would hide the reality of who I am. A couple of years ago, our daughter studied in Argentina for an academic year. We got to go down and visit her, and when we did, we took advantage of the opportunity to visit a place that we visited early in our married life. We went to Iguazu Falls, that mighty cataract of water. That, that sends millions of cubic feet of water probably every minute cascading over the chasm in a roar, a thunderous roar that makes the very ground around it shake. It's an awesome scene, a stunning scenario. Now let's suppose, just suppose that you have not been to Iguazu Falls. You understand that Anita and I have. And so you invite us over to your house. Can, can, can we have pastor and his wife over for a visit? So we agree on a time, we go to visit you. And in the conversation, shortly after we get there, that you say to us, you know, we've never been to Iguazu Falls, but we would like to experience its majesty, its splendor. So, so would you come with us? And, and you lead us down the hallway into your bathroom. And you walk over to the bathtub and you kneel down and you say, would you help us build an image of Iguazu Falls right here in our bathtub? We want to catch some of the splendor. We say, uh, <clears throat> have you lost it? <laughs> no, 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 no. We just want to get a sense of what it's like. After some pressing... Some convincing, we finally say, okay. Bring us greenery, bring us rocks, shrubs, mud. And we begin to build there in your bathtub the best that we can, a representation of Iguazu Falls. When it is finally completed and the water is turned on and it's <clears throat> cascading into the bathtub. 
you stand back and you say, it's unbelievable, it's awesome, it's grand. Thank you so much. And we think, you have no idea. None. Because to think that this represents that, what this does is hide that. Obscure from your view the might and the majesty. The children of Israel may have learned a variety of things about God on their way out of Egypt, but one thing they certainly learned. And that was that God, this God who had come to them to redeem them, to draw him to himself, to create a covenant relationship with them. This God was an awesome, grand, mighty God. He had subdued the Pharaoh, had overcome the gods of Egypt, had been to them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, had opened the sea, had shaken the mountain. Whatever else was true about this God, one thing was certain, he could not be contained in realities made by human hands. To try to contain him in an image is to hide the reality of who he is. And so God says to them, no images, no idols, because to do so hides me. Why did God say it? It hides God. Second reason he said it, I believe, is not only does it hide God, it hurts us. It hurts us. I think it works this way. There is something that makes sense about idolatry. Makes absolute sense to me. And it worked like this. Many of the idols to whom the people turned had hands and eyes and ears and a nose and feet. In other words, they were equipped with all the realities that a God would need to be able to reach out, interact with, touch, and help the worshipers. And particularly if you come to that image and conceive of that as being imbued with the very reality of the God that you're worshiping, it makes sense. You come and you worship and say, I have these deep needs within me, this deep yearning, this deep soul craving for something greater than me. I need to know that someone walks with me, that someone sees my life, that someone hears my prayers, that someone will hold me in the dark night of the soul. That's what I need. And when I come to this idol, it's equipped to do all of those things. It makes sense. But the problem is, it doesn't work. It does not work. You come needing someone to touch you, and the idol can't do it. It has hands that can't touch, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, feet that can't walk, a nose that cannot smell the sweet-smelling aroma of the sacrifice that you have given from the depths of your soul. 
So while it promises much, it ends up disappointing greatly. Christopher J.H. Wright, the theologian, said, that's the problem with idols. When you need them the most, they're abject failures. And it wasn't, by the way, true just in that day and time. We still have the same experience today. Same deep craving that is a God-shaped vacuum within us. Same kinds of needs in the soul to be met. And we are surrounded by dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of voices that constantly bombard us with messages saying, I can meet that need within you. Much of it comes through advertising. For example, if you have a yearning to be satisfied in your soul, filled with joy, filled with happiness, did you know that the answer to that is a Volkswagen? Did you know that? <laughs> You've seen the commercial, that, that beautiful, sleek little bug comes rolling out, fire engine red. The voice behind it says, the marvel of German engineering. And then comes the logo. And the statement, four words, get in, get happy. Get in, get happy. It's not just about transportation, getting you from point A to point B. This will satisfy your soul yearning for happiness, maybe even for joy. That's the promise. Or maybe you're feeling pushed to the margins, pushed to the edges, like you have no one on your side. Everybody has abandoned you. Everybody has left you, forsaken you. You need someone that you know is in your corner who won't leave or forsake you. Enter Brad Paisley and Peyton Manning. Nationwide is on your side. <laughs> who knew that when you feared abandonment, being alone, having everyone against you, that the answer to that deep soul yearning would be an insurance company. There are promises on every hand as we look about. We can meet this need. We can satisfy that yearning. We can take care of that desire in a profound and lasting way. Those messages have eyes and hands and feet and ears. But when it comes time to deliver on the deep needs, we're hurt. Oh, I understand. They will meet the needs that they were designed to meet. Temporal things can meet temporal needs and can do it in very good ways. But it's those deeper yearnings of the soul I was caught this week in reading the words of Simon Tugwell who says this, It is the desire for God which is the most fundamental appetite of all. And it is an appetite we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, but it will not go away. If we de deny that it is there, we shall in fact only divert it to some other object or range of objects. And that will mean that we invest some creature or creatures with the full burden of our need for God, a burden which no creature can carry. 
Simply put, if we come with the expectation that this temporal reality will meet our soul needs, we will be hurt every time. And so God, in speaking to the children of Israel, says to them, when it comes to the method of worshiping me, when it comes to bowing down and serving me, when it comes to recognizing that I am your God and you are my people, no images, no idols. He's not talking about artwork. Don't mistake that. There's all kinds of artwork in Scripture. In fact, Moses himself will, in the tabernacle, use much artwork, including images of cherubim. He's specifically addressing images meant to represent somehow God and his satisfaction of our deep needs. Why? Don't do it. Because it hides God. Because it hurts us. And thirdly, because it harms others. It harms others. You, you heard it. Makes us a bit ill at ease, honestly. You heard it, that, that line, that statement at the heart of the commandment that says that I will punish the children for the sins of the parents even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's a tough line. It makes God sound vindictive and hostile. But we must put this in its context. Remember, first of all, that this is a tribal culture. In a tribal culture, your individual identity depends upon your tribe, upon your clan, upon your family. There's no sense of uh, the individualism that we in America in the 21st century are so familiar with and value so much. It is a tribal reality. So whatever you do has an effect on everyone else who's part of it. It's not a bad lesson to learn. It's a tribal culture, but secondly... Notice the language, the terminology. I will do this to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The implication is that each succeeding generation has maintained that open and overt hostility toward God. And thus they are experiencing in themselves the result of that that started with parents and grandparents. But thirdly, and this is where it touches and intersects our lives, understand that everything we might do as parents today will bear fruit in a hundred tomorrows for our children. The legacy that we begin will continue to echo and reverberate. It can become like a snowball that picks up speed and size and power as it wreaks its devastating legacy in the lives of children and grandchildren. So God says you must understand that the way you live your lives, the choices you make about how to serve me, how to worship me, how to be in relationship with me, will continue to reverberate for many, many years to come. What looks like the answer today, could even look like a gift today, may not have the same effect tomorrow. Old story out of India the country of India, tells of four brothers born of royalty 
the four brothers got together to talk about the gifts and the abilities, the talents each possessed. They felt good about themselves, good about what they could do. The first brother said, I have the ability that if I find the bone of a creature, a person or an animal, I have the, the ability if I take that bone that it will grow flesh and muscle and sinew. The second brother said, I have the ability that if I take a bone with flesh and muscle and sinew on it, that it will grow skin and hair, fur. Third brother said, well, if you give me that, I have the ability that I can cause limbs to grow. And the fourth brother very proudly said, I have the ability that if you give me that, I can bring it to life. And they gloried in their abilities and what they would pass on to coming generations. And they decided to act on it. Walking together through the forest one day, they found a bone. First brother picked it up, and true to his word, it soon had muscles and flesh and sinew. Second brother took over, and true to his word, it soon had skin and an orange-looking fur. Third brother took over, and it grew legs, turning into the tiger that it would be. And the fourth brother said, and I will work my magic, and gave it life. At which time the tiger turned and mauled and ultimately killed all four brothers and sauntered nonchalantly into the jungle. What we think, good and great today, our abilities, our gifts, our talents, all that we have, can meet all of our needs is worth pondering because it may carry within it results for tomorrow and the next day and the next. I like the way the New Living Translation captures this. I want to reread this commandment from the NLT. I want you to pay attention to that line in the middle. Commandment says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You caught that line. The entire family is affected. We understand that. Any child who's grown up in a home where at one point in time a parent thought alcohol could be the answer to the deep yearning chasm within them, recognizes the reality that soon the answer became the problem. A child who grew up in a home who saw by example, we do anything we have to to make more money. That's the answer. 
will know the echo of that philosophy in their lives. Child who grows up in a context where anything other than God is a temporal way to meet a spiritual need understands the line the entire family is affected. So maybe God is simply stating the reality of the way we function and is underlining clearly that we must take care in what we choose to focus our lives on because if we choose an image, if we choose an idol, we harm others. So the commandment is clear. Don't make images. Don't make idols. Don't make your life about idolatry. Why? Because it hides God. It hurts us. It harms others. But we can't leave this commandment without noting that last statement. God says to us, imperfect creatures, the truth is even though those things may affect you for a time, my chesed, my loyalty, my enduring love for you will last over a thousand generations. It may be the Old Testament way of saying it will last forever. It will never come to an end. So if you choose rather than trying to build an image or serve an idol, if you choose to deal in a worshipful way with the ineffable, the inexhaustible, the immutable God, just know God says, my love will echo through you, your life, your family forever and ever. And that, my friends, that is the God we serve. That is the God we worship. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you are grand in a manner that can never be contained by an image, by an idol, by a box, or by any of the other means by which we try to constrain you and define you. We thank you that you are ineffable and inexhaustible. And so we come, worshiping you out of the depths of our soul and thanking you for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen.